You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Ephesians 5, verses 22-33. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, Father, as we come before your word, but I pray that you would that you would pour out your spirit. Father, I pray that you would give us the gift of your spirit, that your spirit would lead us into the truth, that your spirit would illuminate this passage first, that your spirit would teach us, that your spirit would give us wisdom and discernment. That, that, that you, Father, by, by the power of your spirit, would, would help me to preach your word faithfully, that you would love your people through the preaching of your word. Father, I ask that you would come and unleash the fury of the love of Christ through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've anticipated this passage with great fear uh, from the moment that we began our study in Ephesians over a year ago. I mean, I've looked forward to a fear for a couple of different reasons. I know it seems strange to maybe start a, a sermon off talking about fear, but I just I just want to let you know like where my heart has been this week as I've studied this text and as I've thought about it and as, and as we prepare to hear from God's word. So I've, I've looked forward to this passage with great fear for a couple of different reasons. Number one, like this passage is God's word to us, right? It's God's, God's word to us regarding the marriage relationship. Like this is a very serious subject for us in a day and an age where marriage inside the church looks no different than marriage outside the church. Like the divorce rates inside the church mirror the culture around us. Of the way we pursue romantic relationships as Christians, it doesn't, it doesn't look radically different from the culture around us either. Like this realization for us should cause us inside the church, those of us who call ourselves Christians should, should cause us, this realization should cause us to slow down and to stand in fear. Sadly, sadly, like oftentimes this passage 
barely gets a head nod from people who are married, people who are pursuing romance within the church. Like some of the questions that I was asking as I was praying through this passage in this text and as I was preparing and studying is like, what happened to the concepts of like biblical courtship and purity and accountability and teachability? Like, like what happened to the concept of walking in holiness in regards to relationships? Where are the women today who are willing to do anything to protect their purity? And, and where are the men today who will lead courageously by never asking a woman to put herself in situations where she or he may run over the edge of the cliff of sin? Where are these men and women? And sadly, sadly, like these, these concepts of self-sacrifice, servanthood, holiness, these concepts have gone by the wayside under the banner of legalism or, or like that's too old fashioned for us. And, and the result, the result of this is, is what I think, I think the result of this is rising divorce rates and increased sexual sin within the church. And listen, it should not be this way, period. Like this passage has the power to transform the way that the church walks out her calling to walk in holiness as a spirit-filled bride of a crucified and resurrected Savior. Like that's the weight of this passage, and it causes fear within me. Number two, this passage is controversial. That's the second reason for fear as I approach this passage to preach it. This passage is controversial in our culture because the instructions contained within it have controversial language and they've been abused. Okay, like words like submit and headship, they have a tendency to conjure up negative reactions and they've been misused and abused mostly by little boys with facial hair and women who are emotionally broken. I've heard stories from so-called men who've used these words to manipulate and belittle and shame their wives into their own little idols until they become disgusted with them. Because that's, listen, that's what happens when an idol doesn't produce what it promises to produce for you. And then what you and I do and what I see happening is to toss them aside for another woman or another vocational pursuit or some random hobby that seems like more fun than her. Like I've observed with great anger and frustration, like so-called men using these words to force women to do sexual things that are obviously sinful, to fashion women into their personal housemaids, or to satisfy their own inner sense of inferiority and insecurity. And yet, on the other hand, I've also observed passive and fearful men who refuse to step into their God-given responsibility to lovingly and sacrificially lead their wives. And usually what I think happens is I usually observe a mixture of both in us men. Like, I've struggled with this. Like, at times, I, a, a man can be totally passive because he's afraid of making the wrong decision. Everybody ever get there? You're just afraid to make a decision because you're afraid of 
making the wrong decision. So you just get totally passive. You let your wife make all the decisions until one of those decisions infringes on your, your deeply held belief that you have. And then at that point, you just unload on her until she quote unquote submits to him and does what he wants. But this is not the picture of Christ-like headship that Paul has in mind here. Uh, furthermore, if we have an entire generation of little girls and little boys growing up with this kind of leadership as their example. And, and listen, here's the question. like, What kind of outcome do we expect to get from this? Oh, what, what will our sons and our daughters, what will the next generation become under this kind of leadership? God, help us. God, help us to hear this passage. Third kind of category and reason for the fear that I've just identified inside of me as I come to this passage is that I have blown it personally, blown it majorly with this passage in my own personal life. And I've spent years trying to sit under the teaching of this passage, begging our Father in heaven, begging the Spirit of God to apply the shed blood and the broken body of Christ and the power of the resurrected Christ and the empty tomb over my heart so that I could apply this passage to my own marriage. And here's the deal, guys. Like, it hasn't been pretty. It hasn't been pretty. And not only that, but... As the Spirit of God has produced more and more Christ-likeness in me over the years, I've become increasingly more and more confrontational with men and women on this subject. And the result of that has been some personal suffering. Like men who can't go a day without watching porn have accused me of being too hard on them, too easy on their wives. Men who jump from one woman to the next in the church and continue to quote-unquote mistakenly fall into sexual sin with these women have left our church family when confronted with their sin after ignoring repeated warnings of what was ahead for them while calling me overbearing. And then there's been women who, who want to excuse the behavior of these men. And so they've accused me of being unloving or divisive. And so, and so the, the personal suffering for me that is attached to this passage, and it runs deep. So, so because of all of this, because of this fear that I'm just confessing in front of you on the front edge, man, I arrive at this passage with a, with a, with a very real and a, and, a, and a very emotional and, and a very raw and a, and a very passionate sense of fear. Number one, fear of the Lord. Number two, fear for you. And number three, fear for myself. Nevertheless, this is God's word right? Like this is God's word and God's word is faithful and it's true. And on the truth of his word, I will stand today. And I pray that you will join me too. And that, that brings me back to the text in front of us. So I think what Paul is doing here, is I think he's drawing a line in the sand. And I think he's been instructing the Ephesians on the practicalities of walking in a manner that is worthy of their twofold calling, called to follow Christ, called to serve Christ by serving people. And then last week, 
Uh, we learned what it means to be a spirit-filled follower of Christ who then walks in wisdom, walks in sobriety, and is full of praise and thankfulness and, and submission. Like that was last week, what it, what it looks like, what it means to be a spirit-filled follower. And so then now as we dive into this passage, Paul's instructions here for husbands and wives in verses 22 through 23. And then, and then even if you look further out in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6 for parents and children and verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6 for masters and bond servants, man, th- these are all set in the context of being a spirit-filled follower of Christ who is submitted, first of all, to Christ as our sacrificial authoritative head and then submitted second of all to one another within the chain of authority. I don't miss the context because context dictates the interpretation. Context dictates the interpretation. And the the major themes that we should interpret in this text before us are the themes of authority and submission as spirit-filled followers of Christ. Authority and submission as spirit-filled followers of Christ. Now listen, authority is and always has been an issue. Like the word itself causes certain levels of discomfort and anxiety in us because authority is more often abused and neglected than it's performed responsibly. Like with great power and authority comes great responsibility and the responsible execution of self-sacrificing others serving authority doesn't get much press time because it's not negatively newsworthy. Like the news around us and our news feeds like to churn out one negative story after the next. So the representation of authority in, in our culture and sadly oftentimes in the church is either aggressive or passive. Power is often wielded not for the benefit of those less fortunate, for the benefit of those with less authority. Power is often wielded for the benefit of the powerful to capitalize on their out-of-control desires. Like like the the wake of disaster in this epidemic of authority dysfunction leaves men and women and children, entire communities reeling with wounds and hurts that feel too deep to heal. It leaves people imprisoned with sin that feels too strong to overpower. And what happens here as we come to this passage is that into all of this chaos steps the gospel. Into all of this chaos steps the gospel. Like the good news of the gospel comes to us in human form, in the person and the work and the face of Jesus Christ hanging on a cross, beaten to a bloody pulp, struggling against the nails that he's hanging from as he struggles to catch his breath. Like the one who wields, listen, the one who wields the greatest power in the entire universe displays his power in the most massive, biggest human spectacle of self-sacrifice, sacrificial service the world has ever seen. This is where we come to this text. Come to this text under the tension of our own misguided failures. And 
and in the detention of Christ's bloodbath of a sacrifice. Like, we, we must come to this text under the shadow of the cross of Christ where our sin was laid upon the sinless God-man. I mean, come to this passage with your pride, thinking that you aren't that bad, or that you, or, 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 that, or that we aren't that bad. Or, 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 and what you did do is you, 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 you diminish the power. You diminish the power of Christ's work at the cross. And what you'll do is you'll inevitably twist this passage for your own gain and your own agenda, and you won't live in the power of the gospel, you live in your own strength. So the biblical concept of submission, like it was never meant to promote personal gain. The biblical concept of submission was never, never meant to promote personal gain. Like the biblical concept of submission was meant to promote healthy, God-honoring, sacrificial, servant-minded relationships. List those principles again. Healthy, God-honoring, sacrificial, servant-minded relationships. Those principles go both ways. Submission and authority when performed from a kneeled posture under the bloody cross of our Savior. This is where these principles actually take shape and get formed within us. And this is what enables Paul to say in verses 23 to 24. Wives, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It's like as we look at these verses over the next few moments, I want to hone in on three phrases. Uh, Phrase number one, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Phrase number two, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And then phrase number three, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And take these phrases one at a time. Number one, number one, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What does this mean? What does this look like? Like, what is a, what is a, how does, how, how does a woman put this into practice? What, what does a woman do to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord? I just want to begin this morning on this phrase with like what this phrase does not mean. Like this phrase does not mean that the the women are to submit to to, to the dictator like leadership of a man. This phrase does not mean that a woman must submit and surrender to the abusive, self-serving, self-absorbed leadership of a man. This phrase does not mean that a woman who separates from her abusive, self-serving, self-absorbed husband is being disobedient to the command to submit. How sick of a man would you have to be to beat a woman over the head with this passage while abusing her for your own self-serving, self-absorbed desires? Paul's instructions here are for wives to submit to their husbands. Listen, listen, to submit to their husbands in the same way as they submit to the Lord. Our Father in heaven is not a dictator. God is not abusive. God is not self-serving. In fact, God opposes the proud man who leads like a self-serving, self-absorbed dictator. Whether that's aggressive bullying, 
or passive manipulating, God opposes this man. And the woman who opposes this kind of man, listen to me, if you're a woman, you're hearing this. If you oppose this kind of man, you're standing right next to Christ in submission to Christ as he and you both oppose this kind of man. What I need the most is I need my wife to oppose me when I'm being an overbearing bully or a fear-filled coward. And when she opposes me in those moments, what she's doing is she's submitting to Christ and she's loving me. She's loving me. See, a woman is not called to submit to a man who demands something that is unbiblical or ungodly. I heard the story of two couples who were playing cards together, right? Playing cards till late at night. And one one of the wives was oddly silent all night long to the point that it became really uncomfortable. And it became uncomfortable enough for the other couple to actually ask, like, what's going on? And in answer, the husband of the silent wife motioned with his hand for her to answer the question to which she then explained that she often said things that embarrassed her husband. And so they had agreed that she would submit to him and remain silent until he gave her permission to speak. Can you imagine the self-absorbed, self-serving heart of this man and the suffering of this woman? This was their interpretation and application of this passage. This is the precise problem with interpreting a text for yourself outside the rules of proper interpretation. God does not forbid you to speak publicly out of fear of you embarrassing him. God's not sitting back there in his throne room going, oh man, I just wonder what my bride, the church is going to say about me, how they're going to embarrass me. I just wish they'd be silent. That's not a picture of God. Therefore, it's not a picture of good authority and submission in in a marriage. See, wives are called here to submit to their husbands as their husbands lead like the Lord. Listen, if the behavior or the decisions of your husband, women, ladies, if the behavior or the decisions of your husband is clearly not godly, then listen to me, you are not called to submit and just go along with the flow. If you are a wife, or even if you are a woman who is thinking about becoming a wife, then then your husband or or your husband-to-be, here's what he doesn't need. He doesn't need you to serve his sinful desires. He doesn't need you to serve his sinful desires. Now, he may want you to serve his sinful desires. He he may want you to let him to get away with it, but he doesn't need you to. And furthermore, you wouldn't be loving him to serve those desires by ignoring them. And so, so what does biblical submission look like for a woman? How does a woman put all this into practice? Like I focused a lot on the negative here. So, so, So in the positive, how does a woman put this into practice? Now, the answer to that question, um, maybe to your humor, um, as I say this, the answer to that question is actually tied to the principle of biblical headship. Like, I don't believe that there can be biblical submission without biblical headship. I I, I believe that actually there cannot be biblical submission without biblical headship. Like, if there is no head, here's why I say that, so that you have context. If there is no head, then there is no living body to submit. Think about that. If there is no head, then there is no living body to submit because the body is dead without the head. Okay? If there is no Christ, there is no church body. 
If there is no husband, then there is no wife. Think about the mystery of that as we look at the next phrase concerning headship. Paul says the husband is the head of the wife, even if Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he is himself its savior. See, the image here is really simple. Like we men, uh, we, we need simple pictures. And God in his grace, like he gives us a really simple picture of biblical headship. The husband is the head of the wife, just like Jesus is the head of the church, just like a body has a head, just like the head does things for the good of the body it is attached to. Men, listen to me. Uh, your body does what your head tells it to, right? Uh, your, your, your body does what your head tells it to do. Like when, when your head decides to walk east, then your body follows. When your head decides to eat something, your body follows its direction. This often happens to me in the middle of the night. When your head decides to do something, your body follows. And your head usually tells your body that this direction or that direction will be best for it. Like in your head, you don't consciously tell yourself to do things that will be harmful to your body. You're not like, hey, uh, that would be harmful to me, so I think I'm going to go do that. Now, now your head may be deceived for multiple reasons, emotional, spiritual, physical, experiential, relational reasons. Your, your head may be deceived, uh, which is why we need someone to help us get our heads on straight sometimes so that we don't do things that are harmful to our own bodies, right? And oftentimes that gift comes in the form of our wives or our wives-to-be. Wives are given to us as helpers, helpers, not to do the laundry, not to do the dishes, not to have sex whenever and however we want to. Wives are given to us to help us become more like Jesus. And so headship has to do with leadership and leadership has to do with sacrificial servanthood. Like this is the kind of headship that we see modeled in Christ. Listen, Jesus left the comfort of heaven. Therefore, we do not seek comfort in marriage. Jesus patiently instructs his bride through the teaching and the modeling of his father's word. Therefore, our words and our actions as husbands, as men, should teach and model the Bible in our marriages. Finally, most explicitly from our text, Jesus gave himself away on behalf of sinners to the point of death with great joy. Great joy did he give himself away on behalf of sinners. Therefore, a man... A real man is called to perform the responsibility of biblical headship by joyfully dying to his sinful desires instead of using his wife or using his wife to be like a personal play toy. So what does biblical headship look like? That's a question. I just, like, I know that we men are like practical nuts and bolts. I just, can you break this down? I get the idea that I shouldn't abuse my wife and use her for my own personal desires, but how can I start walking in the right direction, right? How does a man put this into action? I want you to think about these four simple words. Know, lead, feed, protect. Know, lead, feed, protect. Now, we men are called to know our wives like Jesus knows his sheep. We're called to lead our wives like Jesus leads his church. We're called to feed our wives like Jesus feeds his church. We're called to protect our wives like Jesus protects his church. Think about these principles of headship one at a time. Husbands are called to know their wives. See, Jesus knows every hair on your head and he knows every thought, every desire, every emotion, and every experience, good, bad, holy, or sinful. 
He knows all these things. And he loves you completely. Like a man should should labor hard to know his wife's emotions and his wife's desires and thoughts. He should he should care for her and tenderly seek to understand her by spending the currency of his time to get to know her unselfishly. And the key here is questions more than statements. That's the key in knowing your wife. Questions more than statements. A man should use questions to draw out the inner workings of his wife, not in a way that exploits or shames or guilts or manipulates her for failures, but in a way that seeks to understand her and care for her and sometimes correct her. Number two, husbands are called to lead their wives, right? <clears throat> Jesus, husbands are called to lead their wives. See, Jesus leads his church by setting direction and modeling holiness. Setting direction and modeling holiness. Jesus doesn't just sit around passively behind his computer screen or his football game while his bride makes all the decisions. And he certainly doesn't come out from hiding behind all those hobbies to either degrade or belittle his bride into serving him better. Jesus is constantly, constantly interacting with us through his spirit and his example in holiness and his commitment to interacting with us is obvious in his work at the cross. Like we men should be the models of what it means to walk with Jesus in our homes. Our, our decisions must be flavored with the seasoning and the aroma of the gospel. Number three, husbands are called to feed their wives, right? Husbands are called to feed their wives. No, lead, feed. Jesus is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the bread of life. Like the table that he invites every man and woman to is the dining table of the gospel. Men love to feed on stats. Listen, men, we love to feed on all sorts of things. Love to feed on stats and hobbies and sports and social media and politics and news, golf game, whatever it is, man. The list is a mile wide and an inch deep when it comes to what we men love to feed on. So we're called, though, to feed on Christ and to feed our wives from the depth of the reservoirs of our satisfied souls. Like the man who does not feed on Christ cannot feed his wife in the presence of Christ. And therefore that man, listen, that man who does not feed on Christ and cannot feed a wife should not endeavor to pursue a wife until Christ becomes the main course of his daily diet. Because listen, if Jesus isn't the main course of his diet, then what will happen is the woman will become the main course. Practically, this looks like regular conversations in the word of God and regular times of prayer alone and together. And number four, husbands are called to know, lead, feed, and finally protect their wives. Husbands are called to protect their wives. Like Jesus protects us from the wolves within us and the wolves outside of us. Like the wolves of our own desires inside of us need to be shot in the head, right? And the wolves in the culture outside of us, man, they need to be strangled. Like Jesus does this by teaching us the truth by the power of his spirit who leads us into the truth that sets us free from our wolves, right? Likewise, we men must protect ourselves and our wives from inner and outer wolves through the regular application of the truths of God's word. And what this simply means 
is regular involvement in church gatherings where the Word of God is preached faithfully, small groups where the Word of God is applied faithfully, and family devotions where the Word of God is digested faithfully. So, so in summary here, headship, men, headship is about selfless and sacrificial knowing, leading, feeding, and protecting. This kind of headship, this kind of headship that I've described doesn't seek to satisfy the inner desires of loneliness or insecurity. <coughs> this kind of headship, this, this kind of leadership, and it seeks the good of someone else. And it's empowered by a vital and life-giving relationship with Jesus. Listen, men, men, if this doesn't describe you and you are married, it's time for repentance and help. And if this describes you and you are not married, then, then I want to warn you and encourage you and instruct you not to pursue a wife until you repent and seek Christ and seek the help of other men to help you follow Christ. You see, a strong man asks for help. A weak man shrugs this off and goes alone. Listen, women, women, if you're married to this man, I just want to encourage you to get some help. I get a hold of some men in the church that you know actually model this kind of headship. Ask them to come alongside your husband. I find some women who have husbands who walk this out well. And ask those women to support you. And if you're not married, but you're looking for a man, use this principle of biblical headship as the qualifiers and disqualifiers for the man you choose. Like there are young men and young women, an entire next generation all over in our community that are looking to both the men and the women in the church to help them and to lead them rightly in this regard. Biblical submission begins with biblical headship. Without biblical headship in marriage, there is no such thing as biblical submission in marriage, which leads me to the final phrase, the third phrase, where Paul says, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Again, Paul is just saturating his instructions here to husbands and wives with the illustration of Jesus and his bride. See, Jesus loves his bride so much that he gave his life in a horrific death for her so that she could submit in everything to his selfless and sacrificial leadership. And the word everything here, if you caught that, submit in everything, that word everything here, it's not meant to be a blanket statement for men to unlovingly beat their wives with. God did not give Eve to Adam so that she could do all of his laundry, keep the house clean, keep the kids out of his hair, cook tasty meals, sit quietly at the game table, run and fetch the beer, have sex whenever and however she, he wanted to. The, the everything word here means everything under the banner of Christ's likeness. Everything under the banner of Christ's likeness. And listen, being like Jesus means loving like Jesus. And so ladies, there will be times when your husband makes a decision for the direction of the family that you're concerned about. And this is, this is what you need to know. You need to know that you have every biblical right to go to your husband, gently share your concerns, passionately even share your concerns. See, oftentimes... My decisions have been swayed majorly by my wife's insights and pushback. Men, men, you need to actively listen to your wives. You should not ignore, belittle, argue, or downplay her insights. Like, because to do that, 
to either ignore, belittle, argue, or downplay her insights, to do that is not Christ-like. It's not Christ-like. You should, in fact, seek out her thoughts and seek out her feelings. Ask her questions that draw her thoughts and feelings out on every decision that you're going to make. And you should make the best decision for her and your family's good, not for your own comfort, and certainly not for your own advancement. And lastly, to the ladies, there would be times when you've shared your concerns and then you've given your husband the blessing of making the final decision. Because it really is a blessing, wives and ladies, when you do this. Um, so there may be times when you've done this. Uh, and I would personally uh, would like to encourage you to have the courage to, to not give in until you know without a shadow of a doubt that your man has arrived at his decision after careful and prayerful consideration of all the pieces. Like you need to know that your man has carefully and prayerfully considered all the pieces and all the options as he arrives at that decision. And until he's done that, he's not qualified to make the final decision. And for you to enable him to make said decision without that is not only unloving to him, but it's also dishonoring to Jesus. And it could have further consequences for others, right? Like, listen, you may not agree with your husband, but submission in this regard begins where agreement ends. But but submission is not commanded in a marriage where there is no evidence of the man leading like Jesus. So just a final word to women on this matter in regards to a woman who is married to an unbeliever currently. Like you cannot expect that man to make decisions under the authority of the kingship of Jesus Christ. But you you can pray for him. And and, and the principles are still the same. Like don't submit to ungodly decisions or requests from your husband. And don't fight against decisions that fall in the gray spaces, but model Christ-like love to him and pray that Jesus gets a hold of him. Now, in conclusion, I just have a couple final things to say. I just want to say that when it comes to submission and headship, we will not always get this right. Okay? We're imperfect people. This is the beauty of marriage. Uh, but as with the old illustration of the triangle, if you've seen that picture, um, you have a triangle and you have... Um, the husband and wife down at the bottom portions really far away from each other. You have Jesus at the, at the one point at the top of the triangle. Um, like when, when a wife is looking to Jesus, she's looking up to the top of the triangle at Jesus in relationship and prayer to Jesus. And then when a husband from the other corner, when he's looking up to that top portion of the triangle and he's looking to Jesus in relationship and prayer, then what will happen is the two of them will mutually submit and lead in a way that meets at the top, meets at the cross of Christ. They'll actually go from being a long ways away from each other at the bottom of the triangle to being united in oneness at the top of the triangle under Christ. Another way of saying this would be to say that when a woman is running hard after Jesus, like she's running a race and she's just trucking along as fast as she can go. And she's asking Jesus, she's got her eyes locked on Jesus, right? She's asking him to help her to submit. 
And then you have a man who is also running, just trucking along, right? Just running as fast as he can after Jesus, got his eyes on Jesus, asking Jesus to help him to lead. What will happen is those two, as they run the race, they will inevitably look over the shoulder at each other and they'll see their mate, their loved one, their lover, their spouse running right alongside them in the same direction towards Jesus. This is the picture of healthy biblical submission and headship. And this this picture, man, it's an invitation for each of us to meet at the cross of Christ where our failures and our weaknesses meet our bloody and beaten and resurrected Savior. And as those two tensions meet at the foot of the cross, what will happen is the world We'll see the bride of Christ rise up in all her beauty from all the ashes. And the the nations around us will know that the God who parted the Red Sea and the God who knocked down the walls of Jericho and the God who left the tomb empty is alive and well, and he is good and loving and true. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Father, I, I beg you, I pray that you would come and apply this passage to our hearts, Father, come and mend broken marriages. Come and 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 give wholeness and healing where there is brokenness and wounding. Come and give strength where there is weakness. Come and grant repentance where there is sin. I pray that. Trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Love you guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.